well, as we saw with the kids, uh, generally speaking, anything that's overinflated is bad news. If you can think of something that's overinflated and that's a good thing, come and tell me. Whether it be an economy, a balloon or a toe, if it's overinflated, it isn't good. When it's a church, it's even worse. If you've got a really good memory, you'll recall uh, when Josh introduced this series on 1 Corinthians to us, uh, he showed us how the book was divided up. Chapter 1 to chapter 4 is all about division, people falling out. Chapters 5 to 7 deal with immorality. Chapters 8, and 8 to 10 deal with matters of conscience. Chapters 11 to 14 deal with how we sh should conduct ourselves when we're, we're gathered together in a meeting like this. And then chapters 15 and 16 deal with the resurrection and the act as a summary for the book. It's all, the book's all about how should we live as a church. The book's all about how the gospel sorts human problems. And Josh described how each of these, in each of these sections, Paul takes the same approach all the way through the book. He identifies a problem and then he shows how some element of the gospel deals with that problem. And today what we're doing, we're kind of wrapping up the first section, the first four chapters, the section on division. And if you look at chapters one to four, you can see and we can understand there's been, there's been massive blessing at Corinth. Corinth is a church, it's birthed out of a really wealthy but immoral city. And God's done amazing things there through Paul and Apollos. That the church has grown, people have been genuinely converted. But, but the problem, the, the two main presenting problems in the church are people are arguing about status. And now that, now that they're free in Christ, they think they're free to do whatever they want. And so you have status and immorality. And Paul talks in chapter 1, he says, look, I've heard about divisions. I've heard about rivalries. I've heard in the church that you're falling out. You, 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 some of you have got favorite teachers and you're arguing with each other about who's the best. He says, it's, you're spiritually immature, really. He says, you know, I, I, want to, I want to have spiritual conversations with you, but you're acting like babies. And the, the, the model in the Christianity, the model in the decision-making in the church in Corinth on the world around them rather than God's word. I think we can be guilty of that as a culture and as a Christian culture, can't we? All those things. He talks about backbiting against one another, speaking about one another behind your backs. And he comes to chapter 4, and chapter 4 really is a summary of the problems that Paul's identified in chapters 1 to 3. And so in summary of the first four chapters, today I want us to think that we're at the doctors. The whole church has been called to the doctor's surgery to see Dr. Paul. What happens when we go to the doctors? Usually two things. We, get a, we have a diagnosis, what's wrong, and then we get a prescription. This is what you need to do for it to come right. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, a, a diagnosis, what's gone wrong in the church at Corinth and what can go wrong if we're not careful in the church in Holbrooks. And the prescription, this is how you put it right in Corinth, this is how we put it right in Holbrooks. So Paul gets the whole church into his office. It's helpful, isn't it? As, as Paul goes through 1 Corinthians, he refers to the church as a body. And he talks through all, when he's got the church in his office, he talks through all the presenting symptoms, all the things that he can see. 
So I can see division. I can see worldly wisdom that's shaping your decisions. I can see some of you boasting and showing off and some of you using your status when you shouldn't do. Paul talks later in the letter how when the Lord's Supper occurs, it's an opportunity for people to show the status and even get drunk. He sees that they're not being tender to one another's conscience. We see from chapter one how there are factions about who they listen to. See, the, the worst form of arrogance isn't saying, I'm Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. The worst arrogance is saying, I'm of Christ. I listen to Jesus, it's just Jesus and me, I don't need anyone. And as Paul looks at all these things, he makes his diagnosis. He looks at the church and he says, you're suffering from an overinflated ego. You think too much of yourselves. Sounds painful, doesn't it? An over-inflated ego. But we see it in verse 16, we see it in verse 18, Paul says, you are puffed up. The word that he uses for puffed up, it's the word that, that we use for inflammation or swollen. What's, what's wrong with the church body? It's puffed up, it's swollen, it's, it, it's, it's inflamed. Things that are over-inflated are always dangerous. They're always painful. They're always tender. When things are overinflated in the body, it's always bad, isn't it? It's always a sign that there's something wrong. A lump or a swelling is always cause for concern. I'm a bit, a bit strange. I, I like watching them videos where they lance boils and squeeze spots. and I, I find them quite therapeutic. I'm watching for ages. I'm into ears at the minute. You can watch videos from cleaning ears out. But have you ever had an infected toe or an infected finger or, or an infected ear? Or even worse, have you ever had an abscess? They're swollen. They're, they're so tender to touch. They can be really dangerous. They can be deadly if they're not dealt with. And Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, you've got a spiritual abscess. That's the problem with the church at Corinth. You've got a spiritual abscess. You could say that's the, book, that's the problem through the whole book. It's the problem that's causing the immorality. It's the problem that's causing them not to be tender to each other's conscience. It's the problem that's causing order when they meet together. Paul's saying you've got, you got an over-inflated ego. You think too much of yourselves. And to make his point, he, he, he ridicules them. He's sarcastic. Verse, verse 8 to 13, Paul's being sarcastic. He's showing them how you see yourselves. He says, oh, you are full. Oh, you're rich. Oh, you, you reign as kings and you're distinguished and you're wise. And he contrasts that to his reality as a true servant and a true steward. He says, I, I, I'm dying. I, I'm, I'm just a fool. I'm, I'm dishonored. I'm reviled. I'm persecuted. But oh, look, look how good you are. Easy to forget, isn't it, that at the center of the message of the gospel is sacrifice and service. That one of the main outworkings of the gospel is that we're prepared to give up our rights and our preferences. It's ever so easy to, to become entitled, isn't it? Think about how the world see leadership and identify leadership. Just look at the titles we have, boss, executive, senior manager, CEO. Now, Paul's a leader. In fact, in fact, Paul's an apostle. Paul's been personally commissioned by the risen Christ. Paul's got special authority. 
But in verse 1, Paul refers to himself as a servant and a steward. How should we see our position in, in Jesus Christ? If we lead, we do it to serve Jesus and serve other people. We're not bosses. Leaders in the church aren't bosses. We're stewards. And our desire is to be to protect and to shepherd. And Paul's really keen for him to see the distinction. Because the church has become entitled. The church has looked at the world and thought, yeah, we'll transfer some of that to the church. It's ever so easy, isn't it, for the church to fall into a business model. Something we say every single, I haven't said it the last couple, I did say every single members meeting we had. This is a church business meeting. The church is not a business. There's some really good things we can learn from the world and from business and all those kind of things, but the church isn't the same. The church isn't about climbing a ladder. I get uncomfortable, on, it's, I won't fall out of it, but I get uncomfortable when I read the title Senior Pastor or Ministry Executive. Paul wants the Corinthian church to see we're here to serve one another and serve Jesus, not climb some sort of ladder. The Corinthian church had largely forgotten that, that the Christian life, it centers around service, it centers around sacrifice, it centers around humility, not position and not rank. If anything, we can see that in Jesus, can't we? The highest of all washes people's feet. And I think, as well as saying they had an overinflated ego, I think we could say that almost every fallout we have in, in this church, in our families, in our work lives, almost every fallout that we have, if you were to trace it back, it's someone, often us, but sometimes others, having an overinflated ego, thinking too much of themselves. The society we live in, um, it, it firmly believes that people do bad things because they've got low self-esteem. So it might, it might be down to a lack of education or something. So Tony Blair, when he was in power, famously, he, he said, didn't he, education, education, education. If we can educate people, they'll stop doing bad things. Society will be better. There's the idea, there's the, there's the notion that, that people get drawn into criminality because at the heart of things, they've had a bad upbringing and they've got low self-esteem. Husbands beat their wives up because they've got low self-esteem. People bully people because they've got low self-esteem. And so what we've got to do is we've got to build these people up, make them feel better about themselves and they won't do bad things. You look at the prison system. If only we can educate prisoners, we can rehabilitate them. Just make them, give them some self-esteem because that's the main problem, low self-esteem. There was a study done in the early 2000s. It wasn't a Christian study. It was reported in the New York Times and it looked at thousands of, of people across three different studies. And the studies all found the same thing, that it was people with high self-esteem that posed the biggest danger to society. One of the conclusions was this. We've put antisocial men through every self-esteem test we have. There is no evidence for the old concept that they secretly feel bad about themselves. These men are racist or violent because they don't feel bad enough about themselves. Now, the Bible could have told us that, couldn't it? Don't James say wars and fights and troubles, they, they come from our own desires. See, the world's solution, well, let's make people feel better about themselves. The reality is, we don't feel bad enough about ourselves. 
We've got a tendency to be overinflated. We've got a tendency to take ourselves too seriously. We're entitled. We deserve this and we deserve that. And there's a growing sense of entitlement, isn't there? There's a growing sense of entitlement amongst our young people. They get a job, and if they're not, you know, if, if, if in the job, they've got to spend three or four years on a, on a low wage learning the ropes, they, they don't want it. And I don't think it's particularly their fault. It's because from as young as, as, young as they've, they've been able to understand, they've been taught that they deserve this. They've been taught that they're little princes and princesses. And that the most important thing in your life is that you've got to feel good about yourself. We get offended so easily, don't we? We behave badly when things don't go our way. We, 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 put ourselves at, we, we don't put ourselves out if it's uncomfortable. The word that Paul uses for puffed up is, like I say, it's the word that means swollen or inflamed. Painfully puffed up to the extent it might just pop. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, that's you. Why are we so touchy? When I say we, I'm me as well. Why are we so quick to react? Why are we so quick to criticize others and defend ourselves? Because we think too much of ourselves, We're, we've got an overinflated ego, and we've all got it in some way. As a, I ask this question, as a church member, do I behave often with entitlement rather than gratitude? The next time we're about to open our mouths and criticize, ask the question, why am I doing this? Why am I saying this? So that's the diagnosis for the Corinthian church. You're swollen, you're inflamed, it's infected, you've got a severe case of overly inflated ego, you think too much of yourself. But Paul's a good doctor, so he doesn't just leave it there, he doesn't just give them the bad news, he gives them a prescription. He gives them a prescription, listen, this can be cured. The Corinthians had forgotten the, the basics of the Christian life. Paul says in chapter 3, I want to have spiritual conversations with you. I can't because you're acting like babies. You're envying and having arguments and divisions. Paul says, I can't talk spiritually because you're too taken up with yourself. They'd forgotten that at the heart of being a Christian is sacrifice and service and putting yourself out and being willing to lower yourself. But we'll never do that when we think too much of ourselves. The heart of the gospel is that we look outside of ourselves to Jesus. The answer to our problems isn't in here, it's, it's out there, it's Jesus. And the Corinthian church had fallen into the trap that, that we can fall into, that we do fall into, that I fall into. We look at the world around us and we look at the way the value system works and we, we allow it to influence us too much. And we feel entitled and so the, the worst thing that can happen in the church is for me to be personally offended. So Paul gives him a prescription. His prescription is this. Look at Jesus. How do, obviously, I can't see that in the text. Well, remember Paul's method in this letter is diagnose the problem, respond with the gospel. In verse 7, he calls them back to the gospel. It's a brilliant question he asks. A brilliant question to ask entitled people. What have you got that you did not receive? Great question to bring us back down to earth, isn't it? What have you got that you did not receive. What's the point Paul's making to them? Everything you've got is by grace. It's a great way to lance a boil, isn't it? Everything you've got is by grace. Even if you're not a Christian here this morning, 
The air that you breathe is a gift from God. The fact that you're alive today is a gift from God. The fact that you've got strength in your body is a gift of God. You say, yeah, but I've done well in life. I've worked hard in my life. Well, who give you the brains? Who give you the strength to work hard? Think of us as Christians. We can ever so easily get ahead of ourselves, can't we? What, What are you and me as Christians, what are we actually entitled to? Nothing whatsoever. The gospel doesn't come and the gospel doesn't say, you know what, Josh, you're doing all right. But you need a little bit of a leg up, let Jesus help. The gospel isn't Jesus takes our good works and, and he adds a bit to them just to make them good enough. And hey presto, we're, we're there. No, the, the gospel comes to us and the gospel says you were dead in sin. You you were going headlong, you were going full speed to hell, you were constantly choosing your own way over God's way, you were constantly putting yourself first, and you were powerless to change it. But Jesus came along, and Jesus didn't help you, he rescued you, he paid for your sin, he he made you right with God, he breathed new life into you. And we say, yeah, but I put my faith in him, and the Bible comes and says, yeah, but that faith was a gift from God. God gave you the gift of faith, so you could put your faith in him. Because without that gift, you'd have never looked to him. We'd have always been looking to ourselves. And Jesus lowers himself and he, uh, and he washes feet and he serves uh, and, and he's reviled without biting back. And they say terrible things about Jesus. And he don't kick off. And we get upset or sore or offended because we've just not been shown enough respect. Or someone said something, or someone's seen me WhatsApp message, but they haven't replied. And the refrain from Paul, and in fact it's a refrain we, we need to come back to every single day, not just once, is, what would I be without Jesus? It's a great question to humble ourselves. Whenever we feel entitled, whenever we can feel ourselves getting wound up, what would I be without Jesus? It's, it's just constantly acknowledge. I'm not saved because Jesus gave me a leg up. Left to my own devices, I'd collapse, I'd die, I'd fall. We need to pause and think about this. What would you be like today without Jesus? How big of a potential sinner do you see yourself? I'd, I'd be a right mess without Jesus. My life would be a complete disaster without Jesus. But we need to go there. We need to, it's not that we, we should wallow in it, but we need to go there. We need to think, what would I like, be like without Jesus? I've been reading a brilliant book recently, just reading a, a section a day. Um, and after, I, it's probably a good job because I've, after I prepared this sermon, I read this yesterday, um, and I'd have probably preached a different sermon if I'd have read it. But he says this, the, God, the godliest octogenarians I know are the people who feel themselves to be more sinful now than ever. They've known the pattern of healthy self-despair. He quotes John Newton. John Newton was an amazing bloke. At 51, John Newton wrote, The life of faith seems so simple and easy in theory. I can point it out to other people in a few words. But in practice, it's so difficult and my advances are so slow, I hardly get forward at all. And he asked the question, Have you been brought to despair of what you can achieve in your own sanctification. 
If not, have the courage to look yourself squarely in the mirror, see your profound poverty, ask the Lord to forgive your arrogance. Your despair is all that he needs to work with. What will ruin our growth is if we look the other way. What will ruin our growth, he says, is if we deflect from the gaze of, uh, of God's searching gaze, showing us that in and of myself I'm terrible. It's if we cover our sinfulness and, and emptiness and we think, oh yeah, I'm terrible. It's and then go, it says, and then we, we cover it with jokes and then go, go to check our mutual funds again and we, we hold at bay our deepest despair. That's when we're wicked. He's saying, look, where, where, where wickedness and problem comes is when, when, when we think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm terrible, let's move on to something else. He said, no, we need to spend time understanding regularly, daily, I am wretched. Without Jesus, my life would be a complete, self-righteous, sinful mess. It's healthy not to stay there, but we must every day go there. It's called healthy self-despair. We remind ourselves, I have got nothing that I didn't receive. And when we think like that, we start to focus on God's grace. What does it look like when we look to the gospel for our identity and our status rather than our ego? We become filled, but not overfilled. We, we become inflated, because we've got to be inflated, but not overinflated. See, the solution to having an overinflated ego isn't to have low self-esteem. It's not to think of ourselves as worms. Low self-esteem isn't as dangerous as high self-esteem, but it's still not good. Low self-esteem still looks inward. Low self-esteem is still unhealthy because we've got low self-esteem because we're thinking about ourselves. Tim Keller makes a brilliant point in one of his books. He says, true gospel humility is an ego that's not puffed up but filled up. What does that mean? It means this, that we don't puff ourselves up before God but neither do we shrivel up before God. We just stand at our proper height before him. Paul spells it out in verse 4. He says, the approval I'm looking for comes from God. And what he's saying is, when we understand these two things, it will be so powerful in our lives, it will change us, but we've got to understand it, that on the one hand, we bring nothing to the table. But on the other, God completely approves of us and that will transform us when we think like that I remember we looked at this years and years ago that quote that in the, in the kingdom of God nobody walks with a swagger and nobody walks with a limp when we look at the cross we can't say I'm a somebody because the cross reminds us that we were dead in sin and Christ had to suffer and, and die and be, and be punished to save us and it, and it squashes our pride it squashes our entitlement but equally, when we look at the cross, we can't say I'm a nobody and I'm worthless because the Son of God died for you. And he unchangeably approves of you in Jesus. Squashes low self-esteem. See, when we understand who we are in Jesus, when we understand that of myself I'm wretched, bring Christ, the verdict's already in. I'm loved, I'm accepted in Jesus. And I don't say this as somebody who's got there, but, but that's, that's when it changes us. Humility isn't making ourselves smaller than we are. It's just standing at our true height before God small enough already that it's being filled but not being overinflated. it's not thinking less of ourselves it's thinking of ourselves less when we look inwards we, we either feel proud and entitled at how well we're doing or we feel despondent at how rubbish we are that's my problem 
That's half the problem with, with me and all the problems I've had, that it's looking at yourself. I read a little test in the week and it stung. I, I wonder how you relate to this. It's quite personal. The test is this. Somebody who, somebody who grasps the gospel will never be hurt too badly by criticism. It won't devastate them, but neither will they brush it off and be flippant. They won't lose sleep over it. Why? Because we understand we're not perfect, but we're not worthless. We don't get angry, but we don't get tormented because our identity and our value isn't by looking in, it's by looking out to Jesus. It's what he thinks of us. And he loves us and he approves of us. I'm not saying we're there, but that's the direction I want to go in. It's helping me in my own personal walk, understanding I've got nothing that hasn't been given to me by God, but also understanding that I have everything in God and the verdict on my life's already in. And we live out of that. And so the next time we've got to complain about something, or the next time we've got to talk about someone, or say something, it might be legitimate. But we've got to ask, what's driving this? Am I saying this because my ego has been bruised? Am I saying this because I want to get my own way? Or do I just need to die to myself and, and zip it? Because 95% of conflicts would be resolved if we thought like that. I was really struck by Paul's words in verse 12 of what it means to be a true servant. I underlined this the other week in my Bible. It says, being reviled, we bless in the CSB version that I use for my daily Bible reading, it says, when we are slandered, we respond graciously. How can we do that? When someone slanders us, how can we respond graciously? Because our identity and security and position isn't wrapped up in what people think of us, but what Jesus thinks of us. If only, we could, if only I could get that from there to there. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. So finally, we've had the diagnosis, overinflated ego. We've had the prescription. What have you... Uh, received that wasn't given to you look at look at what Jesus has done for you but ultimately with a human teacher or with a human doctor you've got the choice haven't you as a patient to a degree all of us this morning can accept the diagnosis that we all probably think too much of ourselves or we can reject it say, I'm not entitled I don't think too much of myself. I had a phone appointment this week with a cardiologist on Wednesday. Um, and she went through my blood test from the last couple of years. And, and she said, I, I want to prescribe you an extra tablet. She says, and this, this extra tablet will hugely reduce the chances of you having heart disease as you get older. Now, I'm going to take the tablet. But she didn't force me. She diagnosed me. Your cholesterol's high. She prescribed, this'll take it down. But she didn't force me, she hadn't forced me to take it. Now I could say this, I could say, well, what does she know? She's only a doctor. I read something on Facebook by a bloke, and he, he says you can get rid of cholesterol by this or that. But she's a doctor, she knows what she's on about. She's not speaking out of ignorance. And I think it's probably the case that when, based on how Paul addresses them in 2 Corinthians 10, it's probably the case that the Corinthians generally didn't take Paul's advice in this letter. They probably ignored most of it. And so he has to go to them again. Some of them already didn't regard Paul. And so Paul reminds them who he is. He says, look, you've got 10,000 teachers 
but not many fathers. What's Paul's point? Paul's saying, I'm not just a teacher, I'm your father. I led, I led some of you to Christ. I love you. Imagine that that doctor I spoke to on Wednesday and I say to her, yeah, doctor, but there's, there's hundreds of doctors on YouTube and, uh, and I'll, I'll look at what they've got to say and I'll make my own mind up. And the doctor says, yeah, but Ben, those doctors aren't your mum, I am. Changes things, doesn't it? Because not only does she know what she's on about, she, she loves me. And we've got so many voices around us, haven't we? Advising us and saying, well, I'd do this or I'd say this. Maybe in church there are people who, who sway you, like, you should do this, you should say this, you should act this way. But Paul said, I'm not coming to you as another voice. I'm coming to you as a father, verse 15. He calls me his beloved children in verse 14. Now, Paul was an apostle. Paul carried an authority that I don't. Paul could have, as he says in verse 21, come with that authority, come with a rod. Paul could have said, listen, I'm telling you now, this is what's going to happen. And you better listen. He had the authority to do that. But Paul said, I don't want to come and beat you up. I want you to listen. I want to, I want to visit you with a spirit of love and gentleness. But will they listen? Have they outgrown Paul's teaching? Who are we listening to? Do we listen to the 10,000 instructors that come to us? Some good, some maybe well-known preachers, but they don't know us. Some people are maybe not so good voices. Some, sometimes it can be social commentators. Sometimes it can be people in education. Maybe, maybe worse, maybe we don't listen to anyone. Maybe we say, well, it's just Jesus and me. Don't you try and correct me. Who would you listen to? 10,000 voices or your dad? We listen to those who love us. And that's why it's, it's important for us to, to think through who's influencing me. And what does their life look like? Is the life of the person who's teaching me marked with service and humility? And that's what Paul finishes with in verse 20. He says, the, the kingdom of God's not in word, it's in power. Now, Paul doesn't mean there that God's kingdom isn't about God's word. It means God doesn't look at what we say, he looks at how we live. The proof's in the pudding. The proof, the proof that we have maturity and wisdom that the Corinthians profess isn't by what we say, it's about how it's affected our lives. Are we marked by humility? Are, we, are you easygoing? Am I easygoing? Do people look forward or dread us coming into a room and making our beeline for them that's a real challenge for us isn't it for anyone who leads any kind of ministry as well is our message backed up by our lives as Paul reminds me in verse 8 to 13 as he contrasts this is your entitled life this is my difficult life he's reminding them a life lived for Jesus generally won't lead to entitlements it's hard so it's about being willing to look like a fool to people it's about being willing to lose position and, and rank and serving people. It's about real commitment to God and his people. And I wonder, all of us, have we lost a sense of that? It's a reminder to us all, every judgment we make, we're to make from the viewpoint, nothing I've got is earned. Everything's a gift from God. The Christian life isn't a life of looking for honor and wealth and status and entitlement. It's a life of serving and considering others before ourselves and responding graciously. Because if we belong to Jesus, this is what we've got to finish on. The verdict of our life is already in. 
says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's what Christ thinks of you if you're his this morning. We might, be, we might be rubbish. We might fail. We might feel absolutely rubbish. But the verdict of our life is there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. And that's a much safer identity to live out of, isn't it? We're going to sing as we close. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It says in that song, I will not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That means this, I don't trust the sweetest frame of mind. So you know sometimes you wake up and you think, I feel rubbish today, I'll run to Jesus. And other days you wake up and think, I feel great today, I've had my quiet time, I've prayed for 20 minutes, I feel really good. It's saying don't trust that, don't trust our worst day, don't trust our best day, Trust in Jesus' righteousness and live out of that.
with me. For in myself I delight in God's law. For I see a different war. Sorry, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, taking me prisoner to the law of sin. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son and that he is our righteousness. And so while we, we will continue to have these evil, these constant struggles that, that we we fight against what we want to be and what we are. We thank you that the verdict on our lives is already in. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Help us to live out of that, we pray, Father. Amen.